our theme for this uh, next few Sundays is the the promise of the Messiah. We have uh, spent most of the year looking at the letters to the Corinthian Christians, and despite all the problems, Paul really did not tell them exactly what they should do. The answer Paul gave to them is to look at Christ and to see the power of the cross. We also had a break looking at the Old Testament references to Jesus Christ. And in those few weeks, we saw that all went on in creation and in the history of Israel was for the preparation of the coming Son of God to earth to fulfill the promise and the purpose of the Father. Thus, the story of the Israelites was not just the story of a nomadic tribe that later became a nation. It is a story that follows the purpose of God in preparing a people that will eventually lead to the incarnation of the Son of God, whose mission is to bring God's created people back to himself. The incarnation, that is Jesus coming into this world, is the way God chose to redeem his people, the people that he had created, a people who had sinned against him. God prepares this through the nation of Israel. However, we often start the Advent series, that is the story of the incarnation, with a series of sermons from the New Testament. When we do that, it is like starting a story or watching a movie from the middle. Much of the thrust of the gospel is lost when we do that. And if we start from the middle, then we will insert our own interpretation to the events from the midpoint on. And in so doing, we distort the story as told by the author. A common result when we start the story from the middle is we form the idea that the creation was good. Something went went wrong and then God was caught unaware and then he put out a plan B, sending a rescue team comprising his son and the spirit to restore what is wrong. That's not the case when we start the story from the beginning. We have already seen in our series, beginning with Moses, that God created humanity for fellowship with himself in the Garden of Eden. That's God's purpose. It is often said that this was the grace of God for humanity. No. We need to note that grace is shown when there is discord or sin. The creation was sinless. And it is not done out of grace, as is so often said. God did it because God is love. God did it because it flows from the triune relationship of the Father, Son and Spirit, out of love. So humanity was created in the image of God. And that means that humanity was created and given that ability to relate with the divine in love. That's what creation is. 
And this relationship of God and humanity is described very clearly, revealed to us very clearly at the end of Revelation. When when John described a vision of the marriage of the bride, which is the church, with the Lamb of God, which is the incarnate Son of God. In other words, the purpose of the creation of humanity is relational, and that's to unite humanity with the divine. Jonathan Edwards, a great American theologian, said these words. He said, God created the world for his son, that he might prepare a spouse or a bride for him to bestow his love upon. God did it all out of love. So the creation was for the Son. It's often said that you know, the pinnacle of creation was humanity and God kind of needed fellowship with himself. That's not so. The incarnation of the Son was not an afterthought. It is the express plan of God in creation. Adam lived in fellowship with the triune God. And this is the plan of God for humanity. God gave Adam his word. And Adam was to live by it. Adam was supposed to have resisted the evil with the word of God. And be victorious over evil. That's the purpose of God's creation. In preparing humanity to be united with his son. However, Adam failed in his mission. With the disobedience of Adam and Eve in the garden, the scene was set up for the total destruction of evil. And Genesis recorded the pronouncement in this way. God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, that's the evil and the woman, and between your offspring, offspring of the evil, with the offspring of the woman. The offspring of the woman will bruise your head, and you, the serpent, will bruise his heel. So, in that conflict, the head of the serpent will be bruised, which means his total destruction. And in that conflict, the seed of the woman will have to go through suffering. His heel will be bruised. The incarnation of the Son of God and the subsequent journey to the cross has already already been mapped out in that directive from God. The coming of the Son of God is the path to victory over evil. What we want to see this morning is that the promise of the Messiah, Messiah is just a Hebrew word for Christ, that the promise of the Messiah has already been given to us in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament accounts of creation and in the story of Israel. And next week, we will see the promise of the Messiah as pronounced to us by the prophets. John Calvert will be here to speak to us. The Old Testament is not simply a record of the history of Israel. In that history, it gives us a gradual revelation of the plan of God for the redemption of humankind. If in the promise of the Messiah, we see only the coming one, then we have missed part of the story. 
in the promise of the Messiah, we need to see not only the coming one, but also the messianic way. That is the way of Christ, the way of the promised one. So we need to see in these promises the coming of the Messiah and the way of his kingdom. In other words, we need to see the Messiah and the messianic rule. Put very simply, we need to see the gospel in the Old Testament. We need to see all that. And it is only in that way that we will see the Bible as an integral integral whole, that is as a unity. Otherwise, the Old Testament becomes unnecessary to the gospel. The call to Abraham is a definite step in putting this plan in action. We read those verses earlier on. Um, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you great. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The call to Abraham begins the gospel story. God chose one man to begin this process of redemption. The call to Abraham requires him to be separated from his past. Go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house. You've got to leave all that behind. It demands a clear separation from the life he had before. A clear separation from his upbringing and culture. He then has a new allegiance. He needs to obey the God who has called him and to follow his will and purpose. Abraham is not just a man God called to spearhead his purpose. In the life of Abraham, we see the way of the messianic rule. And the way of the messianic rule is put before us. There can be no other allegiance than to the one, to the one God whose blessings is to go out to the whole world. And this is the rule of the messianic, uh, messianic kingdom. God would bless Abraham. And that means God would enable him to fulfill the task. And we need to understand blessing in the Bible as God's enabling us in our relationship with him. And not in the material sense that we so often associate it with. Though the blessing was promised to Abraham, we need to note that it was not made to Abraham as an individual. Like his own personal blessing for him to keep. No. It is an in and out process. What it means is that through him, this blessing or this enabling of God will flow out to the whole world, to all tribes and nations, to the whole creation of God. In other words, God will work through this one man and then through the one nation, Israel. And then from that one nation of Israel will come one man through whom the creational purpose of God will be fulfilled. That is, the whole creation will be restored to its pristine purity. The Abrahamic story 
was played out through a series of sagas where trust and obedience are required in the relationship with God. The story of the miraculous birth of Isaac was a case in point. We all know the story. Abraham and Sarah were in their old age where procreation is a human impossibility. It is against this impossibility that God acted. The point is made that God acted where human effort failed. Not that human effort by itself could accomplish the purpose of God or accomplish anything for God. God made possible what is an impossibility for humanity. It is God who acts in creation from beginning to end to fulfill his purpose. And this account highlights the way of the messianic kingdom. God made possible what is not possible with human effort. Today, we seem to have reversed that order of the kingdom. We are concerned only with what is possible with us. That is, what we can do to sort things out. In so doing, we will produce an Ishmael, as Abraham did. Ishmael was the son of Abraham. But Ishmael was not the son that God promised Abraham. Ishmael was born out of his wedlock with Sarah. Ishmael is Abraham's son nonetheless, but not the son that God wants for the fulfillment of his kingdom. We need God to give us an Isaac in his own way and in his own time. In our hurry to bring about a result, we will produce an Ishmael, and that's not the way of the kingdom. Yet, this is not just a story of God's creative powers. This is a story of what it would take for the redemption of humankind. It is a story of relationships. The creation is not merely a creation of the material, heaven and earth and all that is in it. The creation is an account of the creation of relationships that between human and divine and within humanity. The creation of the material is to support this relationship and to allow this relationship to be expressed in a tangible way. God accomplishes his purpose not by merely waving a a wand uh, using his powers. God achieved his purpose by acting out of the relationship that he has created. And that's God's way of redeeming humanity. And his way is through the human divine relationship. The promise of a Messiah who is his very own son incarnate. And it's not anything out of the ordinary that Christ is fully God and fully man. He he expresses in himself that divine human relationship. And that is the way of the Messianic kingdom. While we may be ready to acknowledge that, yet we are more concerned with issues and outcomes and not the relationship in our midst. The way of the kingdom requires us to work 
from our relationships to the outcome. Not the reverse. Not from the outcome to foster a relationship. The kingdom that God promised has its anchor in the relationships that the Son has come to restore. Last Sunday, as we concluded the letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, aim for restoration. Well, restoration of what? He didn't say. And obviously, it is the restoration of relationships. It is the relationships within the Corinthian church that need to be restored. And that's why he said, we need to check ourselves that we are in Christ. That's the only way to restoration. Yet, so often, we allow issues and outcomes to destroy our relationships in Christ. And that's not the way of the kingdom. The story of the patriarchs in the Old Testament is a story of divine human relationship that is played out in the Bible story. We have already noted Abraham's uh, obedience to God's command. And in the Abraham story, we also see the imagery given to us in the offering of his son Isaac on the mountain. And in obeying this act, God had already provided a lamb for the actual sacrifice. This is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the whole world. Now, so often, we read this story as one of extreme sacrifice by Abraham. And in so doing, we miss the most important point in the story. The point is this. God will not take from us something as if he needed it from us to fulfill his purpose. God did not take Isaac. He didn't need to do that. God will not take from us anything as if he needed it from us to fulfill his purpose. Far from it, God fulfills his purpose from within the Trinitarian relationship. That is, in the sending forth of his Son and Spirit, God has provided a lamb for sacrifice on the mountain. He did not need to take Isaac. God's own arm will fulfill his own purpose. And that's the way of the Messianic kingdom. Subsequently, we read the story of Esau and Jacob. And that story makes the point of the sovereign choice of God in fulfilling his purpose to the patriarch Abraham. However, God's choice was not on the firstborn of the twins, Esau. God's choice was on the second, Jacob. And we know the story of how Jacob cheated Esau of his birthright. And of course, Esau has to take some blame for that. He forfeited his birthright for a bowl of porridge. And that was really pathetic. The question remains for us. Does Jacob need to do that in order to bring about the fulfillment of God's plan? answer is a flat no. God, uh, Jacob need not do that. God in his power will bring about the fulfillment. Jacob in doing that, he paid a huge penalty. He had to flee the wrath of Esau, who vowed to kill him. And he had to flee to his uncle, Laban, who in turn cheated him. The cheater himself was cheated. And out of this chaos, God brought about a resolution 
one which no one would think possible. God worked in both Esau and Jacob to bring about a reconciliation between the two brothers. God intervened in Jacob and incapacitated him as he was about to meet Esau who vowed to kill him. Esau did not. And the reconciliation was not brought about by the strength of Jacob. On the contrary, God brought it to pass after he made Jacob in his hip, making him weak should there be a battle between him and Esau. We have seen this in, uh, in the letters to the Corinthians when Paul talks about his weakness in ministry. And that's the way of the Messianic kingdom. Human weakness working alongside the power of God. Out of what seemed to be a chaotic situation, God used it for the fulfillment of his promise. The twelve sons of Jacob from his four wives, but because his uncle cheated him. That's the reason. And his twelve sons will become the fathers of the nation of Israel. That's the twelve tribes of Israel. Again, we see human failures do not thwart the purpose of God. On the contrary, in the messianic kingdom, God works through the failures. God works through our failures. Failures which we struggle so hard to avoid and to hide. The Bible account laid bare the human failures. Laid it bare for us to see. And why? The purpose is to glorify the God, the God who in his love works to bring about the redemption of his people despite the failures. And that's why Paul wrote to show off his weaknesses. Why are all these stories necessary? Abraham had his failures. Isaac couldn't work things out in his old age. Esau and Jacob, those twins, were rivals. You see, we must not interpret these stories through our ethical lenses. The Old Testament is not a textbook of ethics. We need to see beyond the simple ethics of the situation to the God who has a plan in mind. God's plan of restoring his people is on his own terms, according to what he will do. Who can bring about the birth of Isaac to an aging couple, apart from the Creator God? Who can turn a cheater, Jacob, into the father of a nation of Israel, apart from God? It is God working towards the fulfillment on his terms, relational terms. Well, there cannot be any other term. It is God promising what he would do, and then accomplishing it in his own time, through humankind, despite all their shortcomings. This is the way of the Messianic kingdom. What these stories are telling us is that it is not the deeds, the things that the patriarchs did that defined them. It is their relationship with God that defines them. Thus it is said of Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Today we are mostly defined by our profession or by our achievement. Even in the church, we are defined by our accomplishment or what we are able to do or what we have accomplished. 
should we not be defined by our relationship in Christ. This story shows us how things should be when the Messiah comes. These stories underline what relationship should be in the new world that the Messiah will bring. We will very quickly look at the story of Joseph and the subsequent migration of the promised family to Egypt, only to find themselves enslaved in slavery for 400 years. Again, it is God who raised up Moses to challenge Egypt and to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. The story of redemption through the patriarchs now takes a definite shape. The children of Israel live in slavery, unable to realize the dream of their forefathers. They needed a savior who would lead them out of slavery. God sent Moses for the task. However, it was still God working through Moses. After a long tussle with Pharaoh, the crunch finally came. The angel of death would pass over Egypt. The Israelites were to kill a lamb and put the blood over the doorpost. The angel of death would pass by that house and the firstborn of the family would be saved. The Egyptians did not have blood on their doorposts and hence the firstborn were killed. The blood of the lamb saved the Israelites and this is the way God would save his people. This precedent is set for the blood of the Messiah to be our saving grace. The Israelites were also told to celebrate this Passover on the night in preparation for the departure from Egypt, from slavery to move to a new land. Jesus took the Passover meal and reinterpreted it on the night before he was betrayed. The bread and wine in that meal were interpreted as his sacrifice and blood shed for our redemption. This is now celebrated as our communion. The Exodus is central to the faith of Israel. Our redemption is often described in terms of the Exodus. Our sinful state is like the slavery uh, Israel experienced in Egypt. We need a saviour to overcome evil who rules over us and to lead us out of this slavery of sin to a freedom in Christ. On the night of the, the departure from Egypt, the blood of the Lamb saved Israel from destruction. The Exodus underlines suffering as part of the redemptive process. Christ carried his cross, and so we are reminded of this again and again in the communion. After a journey through the wilderness, they finally arrived in Canaan. The great nation had materialized. The land of Canaan, which was promised to Abraham, was finally occupied by his descendants, as numerous as the stars in the sky and as numerous as the sands on the seashore. Prior to this, the commandments and ceremonial laws were given. These laws served to depict the one who was to come, and those laws would become the way Israel was to come to God. These are all in God's initial plan, not plan B. We will be looking at these ceremonial laws next year, and in them we ought to see Christ, the one who was to come. The promise then narrows down to the tribe of Judah and then to the family of King David, who reigned over the glory days of Israel. The powers in the known world until then were to the north and south of Israel, 
Assyria to the north and Egypt to the south. And they were powerful nations. King David dominated the known world, the world that was known then. The nations to the north and to the south were subdued. Now this is not, this is not the fulfillment of what was promised to Abraham. But that reign of David gives to us a glimpse of the fulfillment at a future time when the Messiah would come and all evil would be subdued. Now that Christ has come and we have received from him such tremendous blessing, we can look back to history and see the truth that God was indeed the one directing history towards his fulfillment. And that's what we need to see and understand in the coming of Christ. We will close with a song, The Glory Foretold in the Garden.